Hello and welcome to another episode of the Beer and Biceps podcast with me, Matt Smith. I've also got the dog in the podcast room, or my bedroom, with me, so this could all go to shit pretty quickly. Uh, Today I'm going to be talking about boxing and personal training. I think I'm pretty qualified to talk about this, as I'm actually qualified to teach boxing and personal training. Um, I got the idea for this um, episode from... uh, reading a Facebook status a while back from a uh, a friend who was a boxer and he was basically slagging off personal trainers for teaching their clients boxing, saying they had no right to be doing it and that they were doing more harm than good. Um, Now you might think as somebody who actually is qualified to teach it, I would have been pissed off by that. And I was, but I also think for the most part he was right. Just a bit of a dick. Uh, The thing is, um, my qualifications are in boxer size, which is pretty embarrassing as a name. But don't let that uh, take away from the fact that it's actually a proper course. Like, it's uh, multiple days you have to do it. You have to do an initial qualification, then the second qualification. It's all taught by an actual ex-boxer. I think his name's Andy Wake. And it's a really good course. I really enjoyed it. And it does teach you how to properly throw punches, um, you know, teaches you the footwork, and it teaches you how to teach your clients. Now, I didn't walk out of that... Well, I got the qualification there, but I didn't walk out of that and was immediately a good boxing coach. I could never teach an actual fighter because it's not the same thing. But I can teach someone to punch properly so they don't hurt themselves and having... they can get good workout. There are several differences as well between the types of punches that we teach and the punches that you'd actually use in a fight. Um, For example, an uppercut um, in boxing, most of that's done when you're very close to each other and um, it's done, you're almost trying to disguise the punch. So, you know, there's there's very little movement in that. Whereas in boxer size, uh, it's almost, it's exaggerated to bring a little bit more of the lower body because boxing is primarily an upper body sport. Um, I know you generate a lot of the power from your hips and from your legs, but from an actual exercise point of view, it's mostly upper body. Um, Other than the footwork, which, you know, is a big cardiovascular thing. Um, Boxer size tries to add a little bit more leg resistance into it so it's very different and you, you don't really learn how to how to hide your punches or disguise them you're not learning how to actually fight someone and I think it's important that uh, anyone talking about how crap personal trainers are realize that it is different they're not trying to do the same thing that being said I did in the first gym I, I worked as a personal trainer at there was proper boxing coaches well I mean they were proper personal trainers who really went in like they'd literally spar with their clients um which i thought was just a terrible idea but you know they they were quite good and their clients loved it um so how good are most pts at teaching boxing Uh, most pts are fucking shit at it um most pts don't take the qualifications they just own a pair of boxing gloves and a pair of pads And it is the most frustrating thing in the world to watch somebody teach boxing wrong. Like to see clients throwing punches badly. uh, And also the the personal trainers themselves put themselves in unnecessary danger by not knowing how to hold pads. When you're doing the qualifications, most of your 
you you do spend a lot of the time learning how to punch, but a lot of it is how to hold pads correctly and safely, and how to move them correctly. Um, sort of like holding them quite close to your face is actually more important than holding them out wide, which is what people tend to do because they they think if the wider they hold the pads, the safer it is because they're basically saying here hit me away from my face but actually you're just putting your face as a giant target and if you don't have the pads close enough together you're going to get hit in the face eventually so it's, it's stuff like that but really it's it's just the clients themselves are not learning how to punch properly so you're just going to get terrible technique and you're going to get injuries and if if you are looking for a personal trainer and they go oh yeah i do boxing try and subtly find out if they're actually qualified at all to do it um, I'll go on to talk about ex-boxers who go into personal training or that later on, but you know, if they have an actual history in boxing, then yeah, they probably know what they're doing. In fact, they definitely know what they're doing. It doesn't necessarily know, mean they know how to teach, though. That is a very important thing. Like, you know, not all footballers are great coaches. You know, not all coaches are great footballers. And it's the same with personal training and boxing. Just because you are a very good boxer does not mean you are a very good personal training. But anyway, that moving on, that's, fu- that's further down the line. So, yeah, um, most personal trainers are... I don't know if it's arrogance or laziness, really, but they think they know what they're doing and they don't. And they are... They're just... They're wasting their clients' time and could cause injury. So I, when it came to that uh, Facebook status by the the boxer, I could not have agreed more for train, uh, personal trainers who've not got any qualifications in doing it because it's a joke. Uh, all right, so the next thing I was going to go on about is how good are boxers at personal training? So, yeah, I've, I've turned it on him because... Well, the thing is, it's not just boxers, but there are a lot of people who personal train without being qualified to personal train. And they think that having a qualification in, uh, you know, like having done a lot of sports to a high level or something like that gives them a automatic in to the industry. Uh, And it doesn't, which is brutally proven when they try and get um, insurance for it. It's not... Boxing is a very, very difficult sport and you need to learn it properly if you want to do it. And personal training is a very difficult qualification. It's very underrated. I think people think that it's very easy to do. And there was a time when it was. And there was a time when you could literally just call yourself a personal trainer. You still can. Uh, You just can't get insurance for it, which is very important because you probably will injure someone. Uh, So if a boxer has taken his personal or her personal training qualifications and you know, they combine that with what they already know from boxing, I think they'd make an absolutely fantastic personal trainer. But again, you find that a lot of them don't do that. In fact, I, sometimes it's difficult with boxing. I'm, I'm very interested in the sport. I absolutely love it. So I always follow, you know, what the trainers are doing with them. And there's a very thin line between being a... Um, what's the word? An innovator or just being wrong, and it's hard to tell sometimes, like, Anthony Joshua's trainer is, like, some of the exercises he gets Joshua to do are absolutely insane, and you go, they're not following any of the strength and conditioning advice I've ever learned, but then boxing is a different animal, so maybe it does help, and it's, that's the sort of thing, it's kind of hard to tell, Um, but a lot of the 
boxing coaches have no qualifications in nutrition and all that, but they know so much about boxing. And you can kind of get away with that in with boxing. Like, but when you try to um, make that applicable to the general public, it falls apart because you've been training or you are, you know, an incredibly well-trained boxer who's, you know, completely different to, you know, uh, an out-of-shape mum who hasn't exercised in 20 years. And I think that... I don't want to single out boxers or boxing coaches on this. I've just... I've seen it a few times where they're not... They're not used to dealing with regular people. And I think if if you are coming out of that, that world, it would probably make more sense to... St- Stick in, stick with that world, and train people who are aspiring boxers. That would be my advice. Not that anyone's going to fucking listen to it, uh, right? So yeah, I think we've covered, you know, whether personal trainers are good, and it's they can be provided they've got the training to do it. And um, same with boxers and personal training. But how good is boxing as part of a personal training session? So I did my qualification in, I think it was about 2010, and in 2011 I became a personal trainer, and I was I called myself a boxing personal trainer, because um, that's all that's mostly what I did with my clients. I did it helped me stand out. I did that. I did some kettlebells, and you know I, I did some weights as well. But you know I was mainly there to teach people how to box, well to exercise, how to box exercise whatever um i did that for a very long time and the reason i stopped in the end was i didn't think it was actually that efficient for my clients like if you're doing boxes uh boxercise or boxing properly you have to teach the people how to punch how to move and you know because they're learning a skill and that can take a very long time and in that time the, your client's not actually burning as many calories as they would be doing a regular session. So I, I there were some clients who, I know who absolutely loved it, you know, and we do an entire session sometimes, which would just be on getting their technique right, especially if they were not the quickest people for taking it up. You know, so there was a lot of coaching moments and stopping and, you know, uh, making them redo it, making them... Uh, make a fist so you can say how, how well it's going, you'd be putting the wraps on and all that sort of stuff. And they're paying for an hour, and in that hour, they're probably, they were only getting about 20 minutes of really tough exercise and 40 minutes of coaching. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, especially for newer people. I always thought an hour was way too much exercise for most people. Um, but I I started to feel... Am I teaching people this because it's a the ideal form of exercise for a personal training session, or am I doing it because they find it fun and I find it fun? And I think it was definitely the latter. Um, and it was taking way too long to teach people to you know, certain clients how to actually do it to the point where I and to be honest, there are some people who you could teach them for five hours a day for a hundred hundred days, and at the end of it. They still wouldn't quite get it. And I know what you're thinking, maybe Matt's a shit coach. And maybe I was, but <laughs> a lot of clients I got did get it, and some just, they never were going to get it. There just wasn't the, you need coordination for it, and you need a certain, you know, level of skill. And I think personal, tra- oh, the dog's just kicking everything over. Um, personal training, personal trainers can get 
caught up in all that. And it's not just boxing that's like that. Um, I think uh, Olympic lifting is another one which has really is really beneficial for certain people, but it's actually a skill, and you have to be qualified to teach it. And a lot of the people that do personal training are not going to be able to do it, especially to a good level. And then you've you got one or two options there. It's either you continue and don't worry about their form, which is the worst thing you could possibly do, or the other one is you you really double down on getting their technique right. And you've got to ask yourself, is it worth it? You know, sure, if you're training someone and they want to get more explosive for their, you know, because they're an amateur sports person, then maybe it is worth it. Even then, I'd still, I'd still say probably not. But that's that's what I found with boxing. Um, people were doing it and they were enjoying it, but could they have got more out of their session? Because at the end of the day, yeah, I'm glad they enjoyed it and they kept coming back, but they really came there to lose weight. And I think there were better ways of doing it, which is why I went more went more into regular personal training. Um, so yeah, that that's my thoughts on boxing and personal training. Is it worth doing? Possibly, I'd, I'd say it was the most enjoyable thing I ever did as a personal trainer by a long way. Um, I really enjoyed the course. I really enjoyed teaching clients to do it, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so it's definitely worth doing the qualification just for those reps points if you're a personal trainer you know what I mean Um, if you are a client then I would say it depends what you want out of it Um, if you want to have a lot of fun and stay you know stay with personal training for a long time and you think that you know, three sets of 10 on the bench press is going to bore the shit out of you, then maybe it is worth pursuing. But check out the qualifications of the guy. You don't want just some idiot with a set of gloves and a pair of pads who's never done anything in his life. Um, Because that's just going to be... It's not going to work out well. Right, so the dog lasted 14 minutes before deciding he wanted to climb up to the windowsill and bark his head off, so I've just had to take him downstairs, but I'll continue. And luckily, I've just finished that segment on boxing and personal training anyway, and we're moving on to the beer. Uh, and today's beer is uh, uh, Market Porter, which is a smooth, creamy porter by Thornbridge Brewery. Uh, Thornbridge is probably one of my favourite breweries in England. It's uh, based in Derbyshire. It's actually, well, the original brewery was actually on the grounds of Thornbridge Hall, which is a 11th century country house. Um, I'm not sure if the uh, the brewery's still there, but I mean, it only opened in 2005, so it's not um, it's not a particularly old brewery. Um, their, their most famous beer is Jaipur, which is like award-winning. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, and the porter itself that I'm drinking now. Yep, it's fine. <laughs> I've not always been a massive fan of uh, porters or stouts. I mean, I always liked Guinness, uh, but for the most part, I found I just didn't really enjoy them as much. But I've, um, recently, mostly from the fact that I signed up to Beer 52 about two years ago now, and they just fill their orders with porters and stouts i finally started to actually get into them um and yeah as as porters go this is really good i had an absolutely amazing uh it was a plum porter from titanic brewery 
had that uh, about uh, three days ago, and it was whilst on a, um, a Zoom call with my mates, and it was so good, I actually just started talking about it, which was a mistake, because my mates didn't give a shit, like, <laughs> you know, if you can't smell the beer and you can't taste the beer, and you're just listening to some dick, in fact, I, I should probably stop talking, because I'm just ruining the entire concept of this podcast, um, like, they loved listening to the beer, and I'm sure you guys do too, um, but yeah, so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good beer from a very good brewery, and if you are have the chance, I'd to check it out, uh, I, they actually do a chocolate porter, which... I think is marginally better. Um, I don't have it on me, which is a shame, but um, I always quite like the chocolate porters. Um, they don't taste massively of chocolate, but there's that little sort of uh, subtle chocolate taste, which I always quite enjoy. Um, you, you normally get either quite chocolatey porters or coffee-based ones, um, and I think that this is a coffee-based one. Well, it's coffee and chocolate, so I, re- I really wish I'd just read the label there. <laughs> Right, so let's move on to the made-up questions, and I actually res- uh, made two really good ones today. So the first one is, how accurate are the calories on treadmills? So, well, this would just be any cardio machine. So you know when you've been on a treadmill or a cross train or something like that, and it tells you the time, the distance you've travelled, and the calories you have burned, and if any of you are wondering how accurate those are, I would say... Not very, but accurate enough. So what do I mean by that? Um, They're not very accurate at all. They can't be. Um, They're designed for gyms. So to estimate calories, you need to know a lot about a person. You need to know age, gender, weight, height, uh, resting metabolic rate, and... General fitness would also be kind of useful. Um, to really get it, you'd need something called a Douglas bag, which is a giant bag attached to a breathing apparatus. And as you lie down, it shows you um, it. It sort of the bag sort of like fills with all the um, carbon dioxide you're breathing out. Um, and then at the end of it, they measure how much um, air there is in the bag, and it can give you an idea of your metabolism. You need all of that for an accurate reading of your calories. So the chances of a treadmill, which doesn't know how tall you are, how much you weigh, whether you're male, female, how much the exercise is taxing you, what your current metabolism is like, the chances of them knowing that are virtually none. That being said, they're just giving an estimate and you probably don't need any more than that, really. I mean... If you knew exactly how many calories you burnt on your treadmill, would that make much difference to your life? Probably not. You're still going to do the same amount of exercise. You're still going to work exercise until you can't do it anymore. Or you're going to exercise until your time runs out and you have to go home. It doesn't make that much difference. Um, yeah, if you're doing a very carefully controlled calorie uh, calorie controlled diet, then yeah, it would be useful. And in which case, I would recommend... Um, a fitness tracker like you know like a Fitbit or something like that because you can program in all your details so it'll give you a better one it'll also measure your heart rate um, which would be good and because it's built up such a profile of you it'll actually give you more accurate it's still not going to be a hundred percent accurate 
Um, it can't be, but it'll be give you it give you a much better idea. It just happens to cost a fortune, so you know. I guess it's just the rich people who get to know their calorie expenditure. <laughs> um, but yeah, it it it'll give you a rough uh, treadmill will give you a very rough idea, and that's probably all you need. Um, give you a rough idea. Say, oh, I burnt three hundred calories. Okay, you know, I have a rough idea of what I've done. If you are recording it and you're trying to lose weight and you're using that to give an idea of how much to eat, I would be quite. Um, oh, what's the word? Uh, if you if it says you burnt three hundred, maybe sort of like go well, maybe it was closer to two fifty or you know something like that. You know, round it down a little bit where possible because um, overestimating it would be worse for you than underestimating it. Um, right, and the other question is not a fitness related one. It is what is the difference between porters and stouts? Um, this would probably be a podcast on its own. Really, it's well, I don't know actually. I'm going to answer it pretty quickly, and I guess I don't know how much I could pad it out from there. Um, the truth is that there nobody really knows. It's a very odd one. Um, porters were invented in London in, uh, I think it was the 18th century, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century sort of time. And um, what you had was you had regular porters, and stronger porters, and those porters were called stouts. So when in the in the very early times, a stout was just a strong porter, like stout as in you know hearty, large, big, you know, a stout. So it just meant a strong porter. Um, so you know, if a regular porter was four percent alcohol by volume, then a stout would be six, seven, or eight. That was the sort of idea. Um, but it's all got mixed up. Um, these days, you can get stouts which are three to four percent, you know, like a Guinness, and you can get a porter which is like seven or eight percent, and vice versa. So there's not actually any real difference. Um, I think there's like some people say there's different malts used, and one is more for porters, and one is more for stouts. But really, um, it that's not really the case because sometimes. Um, they'll use different malts and sometimes they'll use, you know, massively different ingredients. And then there was, some people said that stouts tended to be more coffee based and porters tended to not be. But again, I'm drinking a coffee porter. So it's really confusing and there is no correct answer. I'd say all porters and stouts are basically the same. It, it really does come down to your name choice. So, you know, yeah, there's no way I could make a podcast out of that. <laughs> All right, that's enough for me today. Um, hopefully I'll try and get another one done by next week. All right, have a good one.